Hello and welcome to H2 Tech Talk, the podcast series from H2 Tech, the hydrogen technology journal from Gulf Energy Information. So I'm Adrian Bloom, Editor-in-Chief of H2 Tech, and I'll be your host for H2 Tech Talk today. This week, we'll be talking with Martin Tengler, Lead Hydrogen Analyst at Bloomberg NEF. Before we get started with the discussion, I'd like to remind you to share and subscribe to the H2 Tech Talk podcast for more expert discussions on technology and trends in the hydrogen sector. It's easy to do. Just click the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts or Blueberry. Now, before we get started with our interview, I'd like to invite Martin to uh, introduce himself and his role at Bloomberg NEF and talk a little bit about what he does there. Martin? Thank you, and um, hi, everyone. So I'm based out of Tokyo. I've been in Tokyo for about this past seven years or so. Those seven years, I've spent about five working at Bloomberg NEF, looking at uh, Japan's energy transition and how Japan could reduce its emissions going forward. And um, most recently, I've been looking at hydrogen since about 2019, when uh, hydrogen again became a hot topic. And I think that's something we'll get to later in the podcast today. But this isn't the first time that hydrogen is a really hot topic to, that everybody wants to talk about. And so in, back in 2019, BNEF restarted our coverage of hydrogen. And um, as part of that restarted team of, of hydrogen specialists, um, um, I, was, I was chosen to be one of those people. And we've really tried to answer one question. Is this time any different from all of those times before that people talked about hydrogen and nothing really happened? So that's what we try to do in our research. I'm sure we'll get more into, into those results of that research in our interview. And then in terms of what's Bloomberg NEF in the first place, are we shortening it to BNEF or BNEF? So BNEF is a strategic research provider. We cover global commodity markets and the disruptive technologies that drive the transition to low carbon, such as hydrogen. So we assess the pathways for power, transport, industry, buildings, and agricultural sectors. So basically all these sectors that emit some kind of CO2 or methane to, to adapt to the energy transition. And we help commodity traders, corporate strategists, financiers, and policy professionals to really navigate this change and uh, generate opportunities. So our coverage really is cross-sectoral. We look at commodities, we look at sectors like power, transport, buildings, agriculture, and then we look at the technologies that could decarbonize these sectors, including, of course, hydrogen, which is uh, why we're here today. Okay, great. Thank you, Martin, for that great introduction to, um, to Bloomberg NEF and, and your role there in the hydrogen team and um, that fairly recently restarted hydrogen team. So very interesting stuff. So launching into the first question I have for you, very broad kind of general look at what is the current situation with hydrogen, um, especially in terms of, you know, the low carbon hydrogen uh, production that we are all talking about? Uh, what is it used for and what could it be used for? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and let me take a step back again to what I just, uh, what I just alluded to. Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't the first time that uh, people are talking about the idea of using hydrogen for something. And in fact, we're already using a lot of hydrogen today, which is probably not news to many listeners, but some, some, uh, it might be helpful just as context for some people. So we're using more than 100 million tons 
of hydrogen per year. So if you were to fill, if you were to, if you were to fill something with it, say the Dead Sea with, with all the hydrogen that we use, you'd need 11 Dead Seas to uh, fit all the hydrogen that we use. So it really is wow. a the, the challenge though, uh, there's two challenges with this. The first one is that um, most of this hydrogen is produced from fossil fuels. And so this kind of hydrogen is not an answer to the decarbonization question, which is how hydrogen is presented today. It really is part of the problem. So this part of the hydrogen sector needs to be first cleaned up. And those sectors that use this hydrogen today, those 11 dead seas full of hydrogen, that would be mostly oil refining, ammonia production, that's for fertilizers, and then methanol production. And then a whole bunch of other sectors uh, as well. But these three would be the most... uh, uh, the, the most important ones. And these sectors use hydrogen not because they can, but because they have to. But they use it for chemical properties, for the chemical properties of hydrogen, not as a source of energy. So the other thing where hydrogen could be used is as a source of energy. So the hydrogen itself is a very energy-dense gas, at least per kilogram, not necessarily per, per unit volume, but per unit weight it is. So you could be using it for some form of um, for, for, for its energy. Now, right now, there's pretty much very little of that hydrogen that we use today is produced for energy, and very little hydrogen that we use today is produced from renewable electricity or from clean sources, at least with carbon capture and storage, which would then help decarbonize the, uh, the economy. Okay, interesting. All right, that is a great overview. Thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that overview. And so, you know, looking at the the global low carbon hydrogen market. So, in the Bloomberg NEF second quarter outlook that um, that you put out, uh, you, you guys said that the global low carbon hydrogen market um, is anticipated to nearly double in size this year, um, with expansion seen in everything from electrolyzer installations to country announcements of hydrogen strategies. So with this momentum expected to continue in the months ahead, do you see demand for low carbon hydrogen keeping up with supply increases and efforts to expand production capacity over the near term? Um, and, And how will the market keep building to ensure steady growth over the next 10 to 20 years? So that's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, stuff to unpack. Uh, so let me let me try to go uh, um, one by one. So mm-hmm. I mentioned that today most of the hydrogen we produce is from fossil fuels, but the good news is we do have the technology to produce hydrogen from from renewable electricity or from other clean sources, and that market is growing. And uh, in our most recent market outlook, published about a month ago, we've um, put together a a small forecast for where we see this uh, market heading in the next couple of years. So just for context, the sales of electrolyzers, so electrolyzers are the devices that uh, produce hydrogen where they take in electricity, they uh, pass the electricity through water and they release hydrogen and oxygen. um, And they, of course, if you take the hydrogen and if the electricity used for that is clean, then you've got, uh, you've got, um, Clean hydrogen. So the market for electrolyzers is expected to double based on our analysis this year. So last year in 2020, it was about 200 megawatts, which itself was uh, some 60% larger than the year before that. 
And this year we expect 400 megawatts. So that's a double on the 200 megawatts. Next year, we're expecting 1.7 gigawatts at least, and potentially more than two and a half gigawatts of electrolyzers to be, uh, uh, to, to be deployed. So this market really is, uh, is growing uh, very quickly. And uh, in the short term, in terms of, of course, the question is, you know, somebody's producing this hydrogen, who's going to be buying it? I think that really is a question that we should try to explore a bit more in, in, uh, uh, in this podcast and in, in discussions about hydrogen overall. And um, in the short term, the good news is that most of this hydrogen, most of these electrolyzers that will be deployed, there's a clear off-taker or that off-taker is the same company that's building the electrolyzer. So that's pretty simple. Mm-hmm. But the long term is really much more uncertain. So I mentioned 400 megawatts this year, more than 1.6 gigawatts, potentially up to two and a half gigawatts next year. In the longer term, by 2030, we've counted at least 50 gigawatts of um, electrolyzers plans to be deployed around the world uh, by, by 2030. But most of this does not have an off-taker. So mm-hmm. for example, take Australia. So Australia, there's five projects in Australia planned right now, which account for about 20 gigawatts. So that's two-fifths of all of this uh, planned capacity by 2030. It's just five projects in Australia. And all of them are meant for exporting hydrogen. But there are pretty much no buyers right now, very few good prospective buyers. Most of these projects in Australia, they plan to export hydrogen to countries like Japan and Korea. But Japan and Korea right now lack the incentives. They don't have any carbon pricing. They talk about hydrogen, that's true. They talk a lot about using hydrogen cars, but they're the, the, you know, when push comes to shove, really they don't have any, these policies or they, their plans don't have any teeth to actually force much hydrogen demand. And so that's going to be a challenge for a lot of these projects in the longer term as the market grows. It's going to be to find buyers. And then there's a final part to this question, which is uh, what you alluded to as well, is with this market expected to grow now from 400 megawatts this year, 1.6 to 2.5 gigawatts next year, potentially even more the years after that, now we're seeing a lot of different companies starting to get into the electrolyzer production business and especially in China. So China today is already producing most of the world's electrolyzers. It's actually, that was news to us when we found that out back in 2019. Mm -hmm. And it still is news to some people we talk to uh, today. But China is already producing most of the electrolyzers. They're producing them much more cheaply as well, which I think we will also talk about later um, later here. But Mm -hmm. the capacity for producing these electrolyzers we expect, based on the announcements of those companies that are getting into this business, is vastly outstripping the, the demand for electrolyzers. And that demand for electrolyzers might vastly be outstripping the demand for hydrogen, for clean hydrogen. So we might be getting into a situation where the market is a bit ahead of itself in that, in that sense that we've got a bit more capacity than what's actually needed for, for electrolyzer production. And uh, a bit more electrolyzers announced than what might actually be needed in terms of hydrogen. Interesting. So, you know, looking looking at what China is doing and looking at um, this large portion of the anticipated um, huge market expansion for electrolyzers uh, next year and in the years following that, that China is supposed to uh, account for, um, you know, as they as they try to meet their 
carbon neutrality target in 2060, um, it looks like we're going to be seeing greater than needed electrolyzer capacity um, becoming available by the middle of the decade. So how do you see this affecting the electrolyzer market and pricing for green hydrogen specifically? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. It's something that we are trying to answer ourselves. We're really, uh, we're at this point, we're actually unsure. Mm-hmm. So let's start with the basics. China today can produce, or Chinese companies today, and I can give you a couple names. For example, this company called Cochreal Jingli, which is a Chinese company. It's the company that produces the most electrolyzers in terms of megawatts sold per year in the world. Mm-hmm. So Chinese electrolyzer manufacturers today can produce alkaline electrolyzers, so not PEM, but alkaline electrolyzers today, for about 80% less than what they cost in uh, the in markets in Europe and North America and, and Australia, for example. So mm-hmm. we're talking more than a dollar uh, per uh, uh, per watt or thousand dollars per kilowatt in in Western countries, and we're talking two to three hundred dollars per kilowatt in uh, China. So in China already today, the cost of clean hydrogen is that much cheaper because the electrolyzers are that much cheaper. Now, with an expected increase in the production capacity, the question is how much will the Chinese production capacity outstrip the Chinese growth in demand? That's something we can get into. On a global basis, we certainly expect the uh, overall supply to, to vastly outstrip, uh, outstrip demand for a while. So what that, of course, is going to mean is likely going to put, push prices downwards. Now, the one that we're really interested in is to see what's going to happen with these Chinese electrolyzers overseas. Because when you, and the mark, the thing I'm alluding to here is what happened in the solar market, in the solar PV module market 15 years ago. So 15 years ago, if you looked at what are the main countries that are selling solar modules, it was the US, it was Germany, it was Japan. Now 80% of all solar modules are produced in China. So China's basically dominating the solar market. Now you've got these same Chinese solar module companies entering the electrolyzer market and starting to build massive gigafactories for production of electrolyzers. So could these companies be ex- now be expanding overseas and selling these electrolyzers overseas and therefore pushing Western prices down to the level that we're seeing in China and taking over the market the same way that what, as we saw with the solar market? Or could we potentially see some of these Western manufacturers manage to lower their prices to compete with the Chinese manufacturers? That's something that's still an open question. And we're seeing both of these happening at the same time. So Cochreal Jingli already is a, a group of, it's, it's, it's a joint venture of a, of a Belgian company, John Cochreal, and a Chinese company. So we're already seeing that the idea of expansion is already there for Chinese companies. And we're also seeing Western companies lowering their prices as they increase orders, no, bigger economies of scale, more automation. So that's a, that's a really good question of what's going to happen. But at some point in the future, we expect that the Western price and Chinese prices will have to converge. It's probably not going to be tomorrow. It might not be next year. But in the next five to 10 years, we would expect this convergence to happen. And that will mean a massive drop in the cost of electrolyzers in the, in the West. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I was kind of... Uh... I was going to ask that question about how will what is happening in China um, affect 
you know, the markets internationally. And um, actually, that, that leads me to another question uh, on this topic is, um, is there any, with, with, the, with the Chinese companies mostly manufacturing alkaline electrolyzers um, and uh, not so much the PEM um, electrolyzers, is there any um, restriction or preference for, um, you know, PEM over alkaline to, you know, for the international buyers to where, you know, um, the Chinese manufactured uh, type of electrolyzers would not um, be desired for projects or, to, I mean, like with the technology, is there a preference there that you would see, you know, the, the electrolyzer market in China being maybe, um, you know, yeah. just, uh, you know, I'm kind of curious about what you, what you see with that. Yeah, so I think there's two parts to this question, right? The first one is the superiority of Chinese technology over Western, no, is China, or, or, or the other way around. Yeah. Uh, is Chinese technology high quality enough to be able to compete in, the Western, in Western markets? The conclusion that we've come to so far is that the quality is slightly lower and it requires um, more, more frequent maintenance. Mm -hmm. So the downtime of the electrolyzer is, uh, is a bit longer. And that means it produces electrolyte. It produces hydrogen, but bit uh, smaller, slightly smaller proportion of um, of the year, which leads to a slightly higher cost of um, hydrogen. But that's still that's still by far more compensated by that lower cost, the lower capex of that electrolyzer itself. Right. So okay. I think that the Chinese electrolyzer will produce a, a lower priced hydrogen by a long shot compared to the Western uh, electrolyzer. Now, the question is, of course, trade barriers, et cetera, which uh, that, that's something that, uh, you know, I guess we are not, uh, we have not yet looked at in terms of, uh, in terms of our research. It's not, not exactly our, our um, you know, our main specialty to mm -hmm. look at uh, international relations. Now, now the, the other part of the question is Chinese companies are focusing pretty much exclusively on alkaline technology, whereas we're seeing a large, larger-ish demand for PEM right. in the West. And so the question is, is it possible that um, uh, the PEM technology could overtake the alkaline technology, or is it superior? So the, 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 the simple answer is today, alkaline is cheaper than PEM, even in the West, because it's an older technology. Actually, before we started producing hydrogen from fossil fuels, we were producing hydrogen using electrolysis, using alkaline electrolysis. That alkaline technology is 100 years old, and we are going back to it now. So there's nothing new really to discover there. So it's cheaper. And uh, we expect it to keep going, keep getting cheaper, at least at the same rate as PEM. So the cost advantage will still be there for alkaline. Now, the, there's three things that proponents of PEM technology will typically tell you that um, would uh, that that they say is better than about PEM than about alkaline. First, they will tell you that, tell you that PEM has a smaller footprint. So, you know, per megawatt, there's you need less space for a PEM electrolyzer, and that's true. And that may matter for small projects, but not for large projects. And the kinds of projects that we would need in order for hydrogen to play any kind of large role in decarbonization would be you know hundreds of megawatts of scale kind of projects. So that's where the, the benefit of having a PEM electrolyzer is pretty much negligible. The second kind, of, second kind of argument that PEM proponents would tell you is 
uh, that PEM is more compatible with renewables in that it responds more quickly to the, um, to, to the you know, ups and downs of solar generation, for example, to the intermittency of, of, of renewables. Mm -hmm. the, the, that's also true, but the differences are very trivial. You know, it's literally hundreds of a second kind of differences. And we're already seeing actually alkaline electrolyzers being used for frequency balancing services on the grid in, for, in safe Germany. So even alkaline electrolyzers can, can adjust their output extremely quickly. And even though it's a bit slower than PEM, it's still so fast that you can still use it for even such fine-tuned services as uh, frequency balancing on, on uh, electricity grids. And then finally, they'll tell you, PEM proponents will tell you that PEM has a lower maintenance cost. And that's true. Uh, that's non-trivial for small projects because you, you need to, for alkaline, you need to replace the alkaline solution or, or fill it in, uh, etc. Uh, but that's also not going to make a massive material difference for large projects where you would need to have a dedicated maintenance team anyway. And so if that team has one additional task, that's really not going to increase that cost uh, of, uh, of your operations all that much. So overall, we see the alkaline technology really um, continuing to lead in terms of sales. So today, Alkaline is about 70, 80% of the market. We expect that to, to continue going forward. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, um, that was a very interesting uh, comparison and contrast of the PEM and Alkaline. And, you know, so why, why do you think there is kind of this emerging preference for PEM in the West, though, as you alluded to? Well, so many of the manufacturers in the West are PEM manufacturers. Mm -hmm. That's uh, that, that, that's pretty much the the answer to your question. That's the reason. Okay. <laughs> All right. That makes sense. All right. Um, interesting. All right. Very interesting. Thanks. Uh, thanks for explaining um, some of those technology tidbits. Uh, very interesting stuff. So I want to move on to uh, another topic. Moving from looking at um, technology, uh, electrolyzer technology, and, and hydrogen pricing to um, carbon pricing. So. Analysts previously forecast that carbon prices would need to rise by something like 600% or to around $160 per ton by 2030 from $22 per ton last year um, in order to rein in global warming. So how could such an increase in carbon pricing impact the growth and viability of the low carbon hydrogen market? Um, and if, if such a huge increase in carbon pricing doesn't materialize, then what would be an acceptable carbon pricing threshold to encourage, um, you know, like a large scale adoption of clean renewable energy sources such as green hydrogen? Yeah, that's, that's, that's the key question. I think this is the most important question to ask mm -hmm. because carbon pricing is absolutely essential in our view for green or clean any form of low carbon hydrogen to, uh, to grow. Because there's a reason we're using fossil fuels today. And that's because they're much cheaper than hydrogen, except for those sectors where you have to use hydrogen because it's H2, like uh, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, oil refining, ammonia, which is NH3 and requires hydrogen and, uh, and methanol production. So if you want to use hydrogen, clean hydrogen to decarbonize in any other sector, you're going to need a carbon price. We've looked at a lot of different sectors and um, analyzed the kind of carbon prices that would be needed 
in order for hydrogen that costs $2 per kilogram or $1 per kilogram or more or less to uh, be competitive against those fossil fuels. And what uh, the result that we came up with is that the, one of the biggest opportunities outside of the three markets that already use hydrogen today would be steel production. Mm. And in steel production, if you can get your hydrogen cost to be $2 per kilogram, green hydrogen cost delivered to the steel mill um, to be $2 per kilogram, then we would need a carbon price of about $86 to $100 per ton for uh, hydrogen to be an option. And that assumes you're, you're deciding between building a new facility that's running on coal versus a new facility, new steel production mill that's uh, running on hydrogen. So that's still not at the level that would get you to replace existing coal-fueled uh, coal steel mills with new hydrogen fuel. Steelmills, but at least it would get you to, if you were to build a new one, would get you to uh, incentivize to build uh, to build a one that runs on hydrogen. Now, for other technologies, these carbon prices would need to be even higher for hydrogen to be uh, competitive. So, mm -hmm. I think you said one hundred and sixty dollars per ton. Uh, I think I would I would agree with that and say maybe we might need even more to get to uh, to get to net zero by uh, twenty thirty. And now the key question is, who has these kinds of carbon prices? Which countries or which markets have them? And right now, based on what we've done, the analysis we've done, there's really only three markets that we forecast to have a carbon price of more than $100 per ton by 2030. And that's the EU ETS, the uh, UK emissions trading scheme, which we expect to be pretty much um, in line, the same kind of price with the EU ETS, mm -hmm. Canada carbon price, which could reach $170 Canadian per ton by 2030, if the existing law is upheld. And then now there's going to be an election in Canada pretty soon. And depending on how that goes, that may or may not change. So not many countries right now have carbon prices high enough to really incentivize hydrogen development. So then when you look at where are we seeing the most demand side hydrogen projects today, it's exactly those countries where we're seeing these carbon prices being expected to rise. So that's the UK and the European Union. So that's where we're seeing most of the most steel mills adopting hydrogen or planning to adopt hydrogen, most methanol, ammonia, and all refineries uh, adopting hydrogen. The one exception is again, China. It goes back to what we discussed at the beginning. China announced a net zero target in uh, in the fall of last year, or they call it carbon neutrality target. I'm told there's a difference between that and the net zero target. Uh, the carbon neutrality target by 2060. And um, what happened since then has really taken us by surprise in that six very large Chinese companies, in mostly industrial companies. So for example, Baowu, which is the world's biggest steel maker, for example, or Sinopec, one of the biggest refiners and chemicals companies in the world have set even stricter targets for themselves in order to comply with this target without any kind of carbon price or without any kind of hydrogen strategy in China. And they're now planning to build hundreds of megawatts of electrolyzers next year, this year, next year. So that's why that massive growth that I mentioned at the beginning of the electrolyzer market. So carbon prices will probably be needed in market-based systems like Europe 
right? Like what we have in Europe and North America, uh, in a country like China, maybe simple diktat that says, we want net zero by 2060, and you guys figure out how you do it, might work as well. But in most countries, we're probably gonna need to see those carbon prices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think that's, that will, um, it will be interesting to see how that develops and um, you know, if other countries are um, joining, joining that, um, you know, with the higher carbon pricing to see um, if we can uh, hopefully do some work on the environmental front there. So um, I started this interview with a broad question about the current situation with hydrogen. And I'd like to end with kind of a, a broad question for you about how much demand do you see for hydrogen in the future um, and what sectors? So this goes back question we just discussed, um, how, whether and how we choose to decarbonize is going to determine how much clean hydrogen we're going to be using in the future. So I mentioned we're using about or just over 100 million tons, those 11 dead seas full of hydrogen today. We've put together three different net zero scenarios. So that's scenarios that assume we're going to get to net zero emissions globally by 2050. Now, are we going to get there? I don't know. But if we do, then we could see hydrogen demand growing as much as 11 fold compared to today by 2050 to about 1300 million tons. And most of this hydrogen would be used in power generation, and that's seasonal balancing. So I'm not talking baseload power generation because that's just a waste of energy. But mm -hmm. for, uh, for seasonal power generation where you've got an excess in the, in the summer and then you need to uh, fill some kind of a, a, an insufficient generation from renewables uh, during the winter, for example. So that's where hydrogen uh, could really uh, play a, a strong role. The other big market where we expect to see hydrogen demand would be industry. In this industrial demand, half of that would be steel. So steel is absolutely massive. And we've compared steel. Now, what hydrogen is going to have to do in all these markets is not only have a outcompete fossil fuels if you know with a, with a high enough carbon price, it's going to have to outcompete all the other technologies that could be there to decarbonize those same sectors, which mostly means electrification. And in steel production, we actually expect hydrogen might be able to do that. And that's why there's, there's this much uh, demand for, uh, for hydrogen. Uh, other sectors would be aluminum, where, uh, or especially alumina production, which is a, a step to producing aluminum. Mm -hmm. So that would be uh, another market where we expect uh, hydrogen to be used. Then, we're, of course, lots of people talk about hydrogen for transport. I haven't mentioned about that at all today, I think. We aren't very bullish on hydrogen cars, mm -hmm. but we do expect that we would need hydrogen or some form of um, hydrogen compound, whether that's ammonia or some kind of uh, synthetic fuel, to be used to decarbonize long-distance shipping and aviation, because you need something that's very energy-dense. Batteries are just not going to cut it for those kinds of uh, distances for for both planes and ships. So that, there we might see a lot of hydrogen demand in the future. And then there might be some demand for hydrogen in buildings, in heating buildings and cooking. But overall, we expect that electrification will be better in those sectors. Because mm -hmm. a, a, say an electric heat pump has a, um, 
uh, coefficient of efficiency about 300%. So you put in a kilowatt hour of electricity, you get three kilowatt hours of, uh, of heat uh, out of that, which uh, don't ask me how that works. Uh, I, it, to me, it sounds like laws of physics are being broken somewhere, but they're not. And uh, that makes electrification very efficient for, for heating. Whereas hydrogen, it's the other way around. You have to take this electricity, you convert that to hydrogen, you already have a 30%, 40% loss just by doing that. And then you gotta convert that hydrogen into heat, which means you're probably gonna have another at least 50% loss. So then your coefficient of uh, efficiency is, uh, is you know, under 50% versus several hundred percent for, for uh, electrification. So we do expect some demand in some special circumstances in say very cold environments for hydrogen, but uh, mostly we'd expect electrification in those sectors. Okay, interesting. Well, Martin, I want to thank you for sharing your insights and, and your analysis, um, both from yourself and, and Bloomberg NEF um, with the H2 Tech audience, uh, H2 Tech Talk audience. This was a really interesting interview and um, very insightful um, with regard to the hydrogen market development uh, and with regard to technology, especially electrolyzer technology and what's happening in China and elsewhere. So um, thank you so much for the interview and the opportunity to talk with you. And again, to the audience, if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to share and subscribe to the H2 Tech Talk podcast on Apple Podcasts or Blueberry. We'll talk to you next week.